The scripture reading for today's sermon will come from Jonah chapter 1. We'll get a running head start and begin in verse 8 and then read through the end of the chapter. Starting in verse, verse 8, hear now God's word. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to them, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Pray with me this morning. Father God, again, we come acknowledging that this is your word. And we come acknowledging that what we need is Your Word, and that as we come to it, we need Your help, not only to understand it, Father, but to live it. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, be with us and illuminate the meaning of these words to us, and convince us of the importance of these words, and convict us by this living and active Word of God, and pierce us with this double-edged sword that is Your Word. And expose in us any ways that sin remains and that we need to continue to grow in grace. And so, Father, we pray, help us not to just be hearers, but to more and more be doers. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In Matthew chapter 12... Matthew records that during Jesus' ministry, where he was teaching, where he was healing, where he was doing miraculous things in the presence of all of the people, nonetheless, he continued to be opposed. And he continued to be rejected, not only by a lot of the crowds of people that assembled around him and were curious at first to see who he was and what he was doing, but, but ended up eventually losing interest in him and going back to their earthly concerns. Not only did they reject him wherever he went, but also and especially Jesus was opposed and rejected by so many of the leaders of the Jewish people, of the Israelite nation. Specifically, Matthew says in chapter 12 and verse 38, a group of scribes and Pharisees, these were, these were scholars of the Old Testament Scriptures, these were experts in the law of God and in the Word of God, and they said to Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. And by sign, they meant we want to see some miraculous display of divine power that might convince us that you are who you claim to be. See, they weren't just curious. And they weren't just being cavalier and wanting Jesus to kind of perform like a circus act. They were, in fact, expressing their willful unbelief 
by putting Jesus to the test and demanding he prove himself by doing miraculous stuff at demand for them. But Jesus said to them, it's an evil and adulterous generation which seeks for a sign. So their, their request for him to do this was born out of evil, he says. Wickedness in their hearts. And specifically, it was born out of the adulterous quality of their hearts. It was born out of their unfaithfulness to the God who they said they worshipped and believed in. The God who had revealed truth to them in the Scriptures that they had memorized and studied all their lives. Truth about the coming Messiah. So see, they shouldn't have needed signs. They should have known who Jesus was. They should have understood in all their study of the Old Testament and accepted and rejoiced, remember like godly Simeon did, when he saw Jesus in the temple, they should have rejoiced that Jesus was, in fact, the long-promised and prophesied Messiah. But their hearts were hard and full of unbelief and unfaithfulness towards God. And so Jesus wasn't about to capitulate to their demands. And so when they said, give us a sign, he answered them and said, no sign will be given to this generation except, he said, except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And in verse 40 of Matthew 12, Jesus explained what he meant. What is the sign of Jonah that they would see? He said, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And you see what Jesus is saying? Jonah, the prophet of God that we've been learning all about for the past two weeks, was, according to Jesus, a divinely ordained sign pointing ahead to Jesus, to the Son of Man. Jonah's ordeal in the sea and in the belly of this, this great fish was designed by God, ordained by God in order to signify the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gospel of everlasting salvation by the sovereign grace of God that Jesus accomplished on the cross and by raising from the dead. And today as we press on in the story of Jonah, we're going to focus on the rest of chapter 1 and we're going to focus on this relationship between what happened to Jonah and the gospel between Jonah's descent into the depths of the sea and the belly of the fish and the atoning death and resurrection of Christ. So remember from last week. Last week we saw that when the Almighty God hurled this massive storm against the boat where Jonah had, had gotten on the boat in order to flee from God, the sailors in the boat, the crew, they were terrified by this storm because it was, it was categorically different than any kind of other storm that they'd ever seen or experienced. And in their terror, they knew that this storm was coming as an act of, of some kind of divine wrath. And they all started calling out to their own false gods. Meanwhile, Jonah was sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And you remember that the sailors cast lots to figure out who it was that did whatever it was to upset their God and bring this terrible storm upon them. And by God's providence, the lot pointed to Jonah. And so they interrogated him and he told them that he was a Hebrew. And remember, they know about the Hebrew God. They know about the history of the Hebrews and what happened to the Egyptians and, and all of the others as they made their way towards the promised land. They knew that Jonah's God, because he told them, is the God of heaven and the one who made the seas and the dry land. And here Jonah is running from this God, this almighty, sovereign God. And it's obvious that God is chasing Jonah. And that scared the sailors even more. Jonah had rebelled against the maker of heaven and earth. And now these Sailors on this ship are experiencing the divine power of God's justice and discipline. 
So now, coming to verse 11 of Jonah chapter 1, these, these sailors who are full of fear now for the Almighty God of Jonah, and they're rightly terrified for their lives, they ask Jonah what to do in order to appease God and to make this storm stop. And look how they phrase the question in verse 11. They say, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? See, they get that God's response to Jonah's rebellion and fleeing from him and fleeing from his will is what has resulted in this storm. And they get that some kind of just punishment for Jonah's sin against God is what it's going to take to appease God. So that the storm and the sea will calm down and they will be at peace again. So what do we got to do, Jonah, to you to balance the scales of divine justice here and make things right again? What does God require of you is the essence of their question. What does God require for this sin? And Jonah's answer, verse 12, nothing short of this, guys. Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And make no mistake, Jonah knew 100% that throwing him into the sea was an absolute death sentence, right? Even if there wasn't this massive storm, but especially when there was. But even without it, being thrown into the sea, especially in ancient times, was a hopeless fate to survive. There's no life jackets. There's no Coast Guard vessels to motor out and, and find Jonah with high-powered spotlights and, and, and haul him back in. There's no earthly way. There's no earthly hope that Jonah would survive if they hurled him into the sea. And he knew that. He knew that he was telling them to send him to his death because he knew that death was the only way to pay for his sinful rebellion against the eternally holy and almighty God. And so we see the first truth of the gospel revealed here. The demands of God's holy justice will be satisfied and His wrath against all sin will be appeased and the penalty of sin will only be dealt with by death. Nothing short of that. That's the reality that the Word of God very, very clearly reveals. Apart from the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins, and the wages of sin is death. Because God is eternally holy, and every transgression against Him, every single one, all of the little ones that we give ourselves permission in our lives to commit every single day because we think it's no big deal compared to what Hitler did, right? But we don't realize that in God's eternal and infinite holiness, all of those little sins are just as far away from the standard of God's holiness as Hitler. Every single one. The wages of sin is death. See, this is the number one problem that unbelievers have with the true gospel and with the one true God. And with the truth of God's word, they can't stomach this. They can't accept and they refuse to accept a God who demands bloodshed and death because of sin and defiance to his holy will and law. And the bottom line reason why they won't accept that is because unbelievers cannot and will not accept the absolutely, infinitely transcendent nature of God's holiness. And they will not accept the utter depths of human depravity and sin by which we all commit sin against this holy God arrogantly and pridefully every single day. If we really understood, if we really grasped 
just how holy and righteous God is and just how sinful and rebellious every single human heart is and just what a massive eternal contrast there is between God's holiness and our sinfulness, then we would easily understand that death is literally the only punishment that justly fits the crime and that that death has to be of eternal significance, not just momentary in order to make up for the sin that is an eternal transgression against the infinite holiness of God. It's easy to say, isn't it? Hitler's getting what he deserves in everlasting torment right now. And yet, I think most of us in here would say, but I'm not that bad. I don't deserve what he deserves, but you know what I do? And we all do. Well, Jonah got it. Jonah knew. Jonah understood. Jonah had no problem with it. So he should never have defied God in the first place, right? Of course. But now that he has, he knows and he understands that his his perishing, his death, is the only wage worthy of his sin against the Most High and Holy God of Heaven. So he says, throw me in, guys. And, and that'll, that'll pay for this sin that brought on this storm and the storm will calm down because the price will have been paid. Now look at what happens next. This is, this is amazing and I think we overlook it a lot when we read this story, but this is amazing. Look at what happens next. Look what the sailors do first when Jonah tells them to, to cast him into his death in, in the sea. The Scottish... Minister from the 19th century, Hugh Martin, says, A perfect stranger Jonah was to these sailors. No ties of friendship or even of bare acquaintance or kinship or country could he plead. And being the subject of a strange but powerful God, bringing down God's wrath on them, truly they had little and nothing to thank him for. They don't owe this guy anything, right? Jonah was nothing to them, and all he's ever done was to bring massive trouble on them, so we would expect when he says, throw me into the sea and it'll all go away, for them to just say, right, great, overboard it is, and just unceremoniously toss him into the sea without a second thought, but that's not what they did. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. That word, um, rode hard, that word is the Hebrew word chatar, which means to dig. They were, they were like they're digging into the waves. They're pouring everything they have, every ounce of strength into trying to, to power that boat. And remember those boats, right, that had the oars sticking out the sides and the guys were underneath the deck? Every, all hands under there on the, on the oars trying to row this big cargo ship through the storm back to shore instead of throwing Jonah overboard. I think this is an example of what theologians call the common grace of God. This is based on verses like Matthew 5.45, where Jesus is exhorting His disciples to love people, but to not love people the way that the world loves people. And so He says, you can't just love people who love you. You can't just love people who are easy for you. You can't just love people if there's something in it for you. Even the pagans do that, Jesus says. But he says, you have to love your enemies. And you have to pray for those who persecute you. And you have to bless those who curse you. You've got to love sacrificially and unconditionally when there's nothing in it for you. And do you know why? It's because that's what God does. And Jesus says that in loving people this way, they're going to be loving like their Father who is in heaven because the Holy God of heaven is the one who, Jesus says, makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. 
See, this is common grace. Not saving grace, but every drop of sunshine that every unbeliever out there today is, is reveling in is an expression of God's grace to them because they don't deserve it. Every ounce of oxygen that they're breathing. God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. God sends rain on the just and the unjust, Jesus says. That's what we mean by God's common grace. It's not His saving grace, which He only gives to the elect and, and by which all of us have been saved and redeemed by God's saving grace. But, but God's common grace is the grace of God that's at work in this world, even apart from the realm of salvation and everlasting redemption. God gives all kinds of other blessings all the time to people who are righteous and people who are unrighteous. To people who are good in the way that they live outwardly and to people who are evil. Again, the, the fact that every single unrepentant unbeliever is breathing air today is a manifestation of God's common grace. And in that common grace, God often instills virtue in unbelievers so that they maintain some sense of what's right and wrong in this world and so that their sinful natures are restrained from doing ultimate evil all the time in this world and manifesting wickedness in the worst possible ways. And so some of the, Wendy and I comment on this all the time, some of the nicest, friendliest, kindest, most loving people you'd ever want to meet in this world are unbelievers who don't honor God, who are storing up wrath for themselves, but they're nice and they're friendly and they're good neighbors and they're loving towards their fellow man because of God's common grace in their lives. And God gives that common grace to unrepentant sinners as a manifestation of His gracious, merciful character and for the sake of the gospel so that the world might continue and not just devour itself in unrighteousness and destroy itself in wickedness outright, but so that it might continue and His church might be preserved in the midst of this wicked world and so that unbelieving people in the world might be preserved also, so that eventually through the preaching of the gospel, many of them might be saved eternally by God's redeeming grace through faith in Jesus. So here, see, these pagan sailors are exhibiting this common grace of God in valuing the human life and the sanctity of the human life of Jonah, their fellow man, even though they don't owe him anything. And they've got every reason to despise him. And they're valuing his life to the degree that they seem to be ready to try to do everything that they possibly can to avoid throwing him overboard. Richard Phillips says, they realized that their safety required Jonah's removal, but they exerted themselves to the utmost to spare his life. So it seems to me that, that, again, according to God's common grace, they had this value system in their minds by which they wanted to try to save Jonah. And it also seems to me that, as we saw last week, the fear of the Lord, which was ignited in their hearts, caused this sanctity of human life to blossom in this moment. And then, in the fear of the Lord... They were reticent to just snuff out Jonah's own life just in order to save their own. And that, this, this little piece of the story absolutely rains reproach down, doesn't it? On, on our godless culture. Here in 21st century progressive America, where in spite of God's common grace on our great country, we continue to so suppress His truth and our collective unrighteousness and so quench the spirit and sear our, our, our national conscience and flee from the fear of the Lord so much that, that, that the basic sanctity of human life has all but vanished from sight in America because, because we think nothing of snuffing out the lives of the most vulnerable and fragile human beings, the unborn. 
and we do it for the sake of convenience, and we do it for the sake of so-called human rights. Well, what a reproach also these sailors were to Jonah, who was willing to forsake all of Nineveh. O. Palmer Robertson says, Jonah the believer has closed his heart towards the massive metropolis of Nineveh. Although his people Israel had experienced the grace of God for generations, Jonah closes his heart towards another people. But in dramatic contrast, these coarse sailors do everything they can to spare Jonah's life, even after he has caused the loss of all their cargo and now may cost them their very lives. So just first point, just let the Holy Spirit work that point into your hearts. I mean, we're the ones, right, who have experienced the ultimate grace of God towards us. We who all like sheep had gone astray after our own way. We who all have done what is right in our own eyes instead of honoring God and giving Him thanks in the way we lived. We who have all fallen eternally short of His infinite glory and earned the wages of sin for ourselves. Death for ourselves. Instead of being given what we deserved, we were given the eternally redeeming love of God who has loved us to the uttermost. So, the question is, does that love of God foster in us a love for our fellow man, a love especially for one another, which is the same kind of love with which He has loved us? Not, not again, not like the love of pagan unbelievers who are only willing to love people who first love them and are easy for them to love, but but the love of God who loves his enemies and who blesses those who curse him. That was us, right? We were cursing him in our self-righteous sin. But we were blessed eternally by him. Anyways, do we reflect that towards one another and towards the world, this same self-denying, self-abasing, self-sacrificing love with which the holy God has loved us? Jonah, the prophet of this holy God, who is also the God of steadfast love and mercy. Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with going to Nineveh and being the conduit of God's unconditional love and mercy to these sinners, even though Jonah himself was the undeserving recipient of the same mercy and grace and love of God. And in God's good providence, Jonah's selfish pride was put to shame by these pagan sailors who by God's common grace did their level best to avoid just, just flippantly discarding Jonah's life into the depths of the sea when he was inviting them to. So we should all pray, right, that the great love with which God has loved us would translate into a great self-sacrificing love with which we would love one another and love even our enemies and the world around us. Now God, in His... Sovereign purposes for Jonah and through Jonah, God wasn't going to cooperate with the sailors' attempts to spare Jonah from the sea because God had, a, had another purpose. They were trying to row their way out of the storm and the storm got more and more tempestuous. All of their valiant effort was thwarted by the sovereign power of God. So what do they do now? Well, they're done calling out to their God, see? And they're done trying to strive in their own strength, see? Verse 14, Therefore they called out to Yahweh. They called out to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Do you see the gospel in verse 14? Think upon that. And what do you make of the way, first of all, that these sailors are calling out to the one true God? There's some pretty significant disagreement among scholars of the book of Jonah about 
what their calling out to the Lord means about the condition of their souls at this point in verse 14. There's a lot of Old Testament scholars who believe that whatever's indicated in these verses is not an indication of true saving faith in the one true God on the part of these sailors. The name you're most familiar with is John Calvin, among those who do not think that that verses 14 and 15 indicate saving faith in God in the hearts of these sailors. Listen to what Calvin says. He says that in calling out to God like they did, the sailors were not so suddenly changed as to devote themselves truly to the true God. And this was not such a real and thorough conversion of the soul as changed them into new men. That's what Calvin says. And my question to Calvin, all due respect, sir, why not? What does the text indicate here? On the other side of the fence, there are a lot of scholars who do think that the words of these sailors indicate genuine living faith in the genuine and true living God. Men like James Boyce and R.T. Kendall and Thomas McComsky and O. Palmer Robertson and others. Pretty scholarly guys, pretty godly guys. Kendall says of these sailors having exhausted all of their own strength and resources to save themselves, crying out to the God who they knew was sovereign over the storm. He says it took no more grace for them to be saved than it takes for any Christian to be saved. Amen? Were they worse than me? (laughs) Were they more unsavable than me? Of course not. Why would we doubt that in their crying out to God that, that they were exhibiting the fruit of real faith in God? Now listen to Calvin. So remember, Calvin denies. Calvin says they weren't really regenerate. They weren't really trusting God. But listen to what else he says. And try see if you can square this up, because I have trouble. He says, um, the sailors on that ship were not only touched deeply with the fear of God, but that they also had the impression that the God of Israel was the supreme God and King of heaven and earth. And realizing this about God, Calvin also says that they understood that they were previously deluded and whatever the world had invented was mere delusion and that the gods they had devised by the fancies of their own minds were nothing but mere idols. So how is that not them forsaking their false gods and placing their whole faith and trust for their very lives in the hands of the one true God? I don't get it. What else does Calvin need, right? No, no disrespect. I love him. But, but according to him, these sailors are, are repenting of their false gods and believing on the true God as the supreme God of heaven and earth. And, 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 and the question is, what else, what else is there? that these sailors had in the midst of this storm, by the grace of God, devoting themselves to the true God through a real and true conversion of their souls and away from their false gods, what else is there that we would need to say that that's saving faith? So it seems to me that the text of Scripture itself very much seems to suggest that through this severe providence, God is putting His mercy and grace powerfully on display by turning the hearts of these idolatrous sailors away from their false gods in repentance and to Him as the true God in living faith. Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Really, what else do you need? What else could the Scripture say to convince us that by God's grace in this ferocious storm, these pagan sailors came to living faith in the true God that Jonah had proclaimed to them and were calling out to him in reverence for salvation. They're offering sacrifices to him. They're making vows to him. Okay, one more, one more Calvin quote for you. Again, he's, I think he's proven himself wrong, but listen, he says... When the sailors made a vow to God, they renounced their own idols and they made their true vows to the only true God for they knew that their very lives were held only in His sovereign and merciful 
an omnipotent hand. I mean, that's the best description of Old Testament gospel faith I've ever heard. They renounced their own idols. And they put their confidence in the living God. Here's another quote. Joyce Baldwin says, These sailors have made a life-changing discovery because they have providentially come into contact with the living God. And they make such offerings as they can then and there, but plan to do more in the balance of their lives because they're formulating their future intention into vows to be carried out later. They're saying, God, I'll give you my whole life and my whole trust and my whole confidence because truly you are the only Most High God. So in other words, this, this, this great storm has awakened in them, as we saw last week, this great fear of the Lord which Jonah has proclaimed to them. And in this fear of the Lord, they call out to God rejecting and recanting all of their false gods, recognizing and receiving the true God as the one who they would confess to that their lives belong to Him. And so they believed Him and they forsook everything else and they trusted Him and feared Him and cried out to Him and made vows and worshipped Him and depended on Him for their very lives. In my book, that all means that by God's redeeming grace, even through this severe trial... He drew these pagan, unbelieving, idolatrous sailors unto Himself in real saving faith in the midst of a great storm as a marvelous manifestation of His great mercy and grace in contrast to Jonah's own self-willed, hard-hearted apathy. And, and, And God did all of that in anticipation of the great outpouring of divine mercy and grace of God that would come through Jesus. So, again, be like Jesus, not like Jonah. So to me, when we focus on the sailors here, we see this massive manifestation of grace, which turns them away from unbelief and turns them to Him in living faith. Now we focus not just on the sailors, but on Jonah. And when we focus on Jonah, we also see a picture of God's saving grace, but not at all in the same way, right? In the sailors, we see a very powerful example of how the living God can instill living hope, even in the hardest of hearts of those who He sovereignly softens and draws into Himself. And that, again, that's all of us, right? If any of us think that it took less grace to save us, that our hearts were less hard, than those pagan sailors or than the godless King Nebuchadnezzar or Saul of Tarsus, then we're more like Jonah than these sailors. And the whole brilliant irony of this story is how hard-hearted and stubborn Jonah, the prophet of God, was compared to the pagans on the ship to Tarsus and the pagans in Nineveh later. I mean, they can't boast, but... In God's great providence and by God's great purposes of grace, He softened the hardest of hearts in stark contrast to the the stubbornness and hard-heartedness of His own prophet. So honestly, when you think about Jonah saying, throw me overboard and and into the sea and, and to his death, I think we got to be careful and not be tempted to take that as a sign of any kind of real repentance in Jonah, at least not yet. Next week in chapter 2, when he's in the belly of the great fish, there's some signs that his heart is softening. But honestly, at this point on the deck of the ship, rather than just repenting and saying to God, oh, I'm sorry for my sin, I'm ready to devote myself to your will and go to Nineveh, right? That's not what he does. That would be what repentance looks like. But rather than that, Jonah says, oh, just throw me into the sea, just kill me. Honestly, at this point, Jonah's heart is still much more consumed with Jonah's own self-interest and self-pity and pride than God's will that he's literally saying, I I think I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. I, I don't think the solution that he proposes is really repentance. 
And again, the contrast to his persistently hard heart is the fear of the Lord that's just blossoming in the sailors as they cry out to God for help. There's a lot of humbling reality here for us, right? For any of us who have been saved by God's grace alone, it can get really easy to take that grace for granted on a day-to-day basis. It can get really easy for us to let ourselves look down on other people who sin around us and go, oh, oh, I can't believe you're like that. Or sin against us. And instead of giving them the grace that God has given us, giving ourselves permission to be punitive or to be petty, to be vindictive, we forget all too easily how absolutely dependent on God's grace we all are. And in our forgetfulness or neglect like Jonah, we're not ready, we're not willing to give grace to other sinners who need it no more than we needed it. So, how is Jonah himself a sign, a a signification of Jesus in the gospel? It's not because of his own attitude towards lost sinners. It's not because of anything he did. But in God's providence, Jonah does point us to Christ. How? There's two ways. One points backwards to the history of Israel, and one points forward to Christ. In Israel's history, every year on the Day of Atonement, which was that one day every year when the sin of the whole nation was dealt with, a part of what God prescribed to happen on the Day of Atonement was that the high priest would come into the tabernacle with two living goats. And then they would cast lots for each goat. Remember, just like the sailors cast lots for Jonah? Lots would be cast, and one of the goats then, upon which the lot for the Lord was cast, would be slaughtered. It would become the sacrificial animal whose blood was shed in order to pay for the price of the sin of the people. And then the other goat would remain alive and the high priest would put his hands on that goat and then send it away into the wilderness. Here's the signification of it. The first goat shed its blood in order to pay for Israel's sins because sin requires death. The second goat signified taking the sin of Israel on its back and and carrying it away, removing it. And that goat was known as the scapegoat, the one that took the sins of others away. And together, by making full payment for sin and by the removal of sin, together these two animals provided atonement for the sin that stood in between God and His people. That's all laid out in Leviticus chapter 16. And in His mercy, this is how God prescribed, this is how God ordained for sin to be dealt with so that instead of having to just destroy and, and, and put to death all of the sinners themselves, which is what their sin deserves, instead, mercifully, God ordained for it to be dealt with and removed by another. And of course, that reminds us of Jesus, right? Who's the ultimate fulfillment of that, but in between the two is Jonah. By being thrown into the sea and to certain death, Jonah is fulfilling the same rules. I mean, it's his sin, not the sin of another. That's the difference. But, but it's the payment for sin that is the picture here, right? And the reality here. His sin will be removed as it's being paid for, removed from the ship and sent into the depths of the ocean so that peace could be restored to everyone on the ship when the storm was stilled. You see the gospel in it? Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. There was peace now between God and the sailors. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered him a sacrifice and made vows. And then, of course, Jonah and his being cast away to certain death in the depths of the sea 
it doesn't just look back on the Leviticus prescription of the scapegoat and the sacrificial goat. It looks forward to the ultimate fulfillment of God's merciful atoning purposes in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And again, this is where Jesus' own words come in in Matthew chapter 12. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the great significance, of course, of Jesus comparing himself to Jonah and comparing what happened to Jonah to what's going to happen to him, it's, it's far greater than just the comparison of what happened to both of them physically, right? Jesus isn't just saying, well, you're going to see a, a correspondence of, of historical events, right? Just like Jonah went into the sea, I'm going to go into a tomb. It's not what happened that's so significant as why it happened, right? Just like Jonah paid for the sin and carried it away, took away the wrath of God against the boat and restored peace, so Jesus, in an infinitely more holy and perfect and complete way, because He's not doing it for the sake of His own sin, He's doing it for ours, So Jesus paid the price of our sin and carried it away and forever appeased the wrath of God and forever made peace between us and God by the blood of His cross. So it's the gospel according to Jonah, see? The sacrificial goat and the scapegoat of Leviticus 16 and and Jonah, according to Jesus, show us that God's way of salvation involves placing sins upon someone who will die because sin requires nothing less than that in Jonah's case it was his own sin that he took into the depths of the sea and gloriously on the cross Jesus shed his own blood and died for our sins and in doing that carried them away forever the ultimate scapegoat and the ultimate sacrifice Again, O. Palmer Robertson, he says, In Jonah, God pursues one man to the death in order that God might bless the many who remained on the ship. Likewise, God pursued His own Son, even to death, that many from every nation under heaven might be saved. And so Jonah's story points us to Jesus in in these all-important ways, right? First, God's judgment against sin. All sin, all human beings, God's judgment against any and all sin ends in death. It has to. When those sailors hauled Jonah over the rail and watched him plunge into the water, as far as they knew and as far as Jonah was concerned, that was the end for him. He wasn't going to survive that. And then, verse 17 against anybody's wildest expectations, God appointed a giant fish to swallow Jonah up. And I think again, as soon as that happened, as far as Jonah was concerned, it was over for him. It it just went from bad to worse, right? Jonah didn't see this as a life raft. One Old Testament scholar says to Jonah, this was... Certainty of damnation. To him, the fish was in fact hell. He had traversed the agonies of sin and justice and come to this hell prepared for him by God himself to enforce the total separation of man and God. And now think about this at the heart of all human sin. Every single instance of sin in all our hearts is this same desire to flee from God which Jonah epitomizes in this story, right? Just just like Adam and Eve first in the garden, defied God's will, did their own thing, and then hid themselves from Him. Didn't want to be anywhere near Him. At the end of every desire to flee from God and His will is hell. Is If you want to run away from me, then that's the ultimate expression of separation from me and my goodness and my grace and my mercy and my blessings. Jonah wanted to get as far away from God as he could, and the belly of the fish was the ultimate achievement of that rebellious desire, as far as Jonah understood at this point. 
So like Jonah, every single sinner has charted a path away from God, which can only lead to damnation and everlasting death. But in his great grace, God has mercy. Jesus has endured this damnation and death in our place on the cross. Richard Phillips says, just as Jonah's death in the deep, quote-unquote, removed the storm from the sailors above, so Jesus' cross removes the wrath of God from our sins and restores us to peace with Him. By His self-sacrificing grace, Jesus paid all of the price for our sin, just like the sacrificial goat. We call that expiation of sin. And Jesus placated the wrath of God against our sin. The Bible calls that propitiation in Romans 3 and Hebrews 2 and in, and in 1 John chapter 2 and 4. Propitiation means turning away the wrath of God. And Jesus restores us to God's favor and fellowship with God. That's called reconciliation. And in Jesus, we're given new natures, new hearts. That's what the Bible calls regeneration. And we're given a new standing before God. He doesn't look at us as sinners anymore. The Bible calls that forgiveness and justification. And Peter says we're given a living hope of a new future of everlasting life in the glorious presence of God and all of His blessings instead of in the punishments and condemnation of eternal hell. So the sign of Jonah that Jesus said he was is, is that Jesus went through hell for the sake of sinners like us. See, he died. He was buried in the tomb for three days and then raised in victory over our sin, over death, so that in him we could be raised to newness of life, everlasting life, and be at peace with God forever. So see this fish that God appointed to swallow up Jonah. We don't, don't, even, don't even worry about what kind of fish it was. Don't even worry that Scientific American has studied all of the species of fish on the earth and concluded that there isn't one that this would work with. Right? There's all kinds of things that according to the laws of science don't work in the Bible because God transcends them all in His supernatural power. Who knows? It doesn't matter. God doesn't tell us what kind of fish it was, so we don't need to know. What we need to know is that this fish was appointed by God to swallow Jonah up. And this fish that God appointed, which, remember, one scholar compared to hell and damnation, isn't only significant of hell and damnation for Jonah and God's judgment against Jonah's sin. It's also significant of God's massive and sovereign grace, which came by way of that hellish judgment. Just like God's grace through Jesus came by way of the hellish judgment that Jesus endured for us. So verse 17 says, very, very importantly, that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The word in Hebrew comes from a word means it means to count and it means to put things in order like an accountant would. So it means to arrange things in an orderly fashion. So see, it's not just that God was sovereignly sitting up in heaven and said, hey fish, go swallow Jonah and then sit back and watch the fish do its thing. It's God ordering. It's God sovereignly arranging and orchestrating every single aspect of the created order for all of history, every instance, every moment, exactly perfectly, so that at this precise moment when Jonah hits the water, this exact fish is in exactly the right place to open up its jaws and swallow Jonah whole. And that same kind of divine sovereign orchestration so as to accomplish God's purposes, that, that theme runs all throughout the rest of the book of Jonah too. God appoints the fish. Later, God appoints a plant to shade Jonah from the sun. Then, when Jonah's whining and complaining, God sovereignly appoints a worm to destroy the plant. And then God sovereignly appoints a strong east wind to blow against Jonah 
all in order to accomplish God's divine will through Jonah and for Jonah. And of course, all this same theme runs all throughout the scriptures, right? God's the one who decrees the end from the beginning. And all of it culminates in God's sovereignly preparing and appointing His only begotten Son to be born of a virgin in a, in a cattle manger in Bethlehem in precise and exacting fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy. God ordained and God appointed that Jesus would be betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver, an exact and precise fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that, that he would be delivered into the hands of the Romans, that he would be unjustly tried and convicted and crucified at the hands of Gentiles. And all of it, in Peter's words in Acts chapter 2, all of it happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And God appointed supernaturally, miraculously, that Jesus would rise from the dead on the third day. Appearing again in the world in resurrection power and glory. Bringing salvation to the nations. Bringing peace with God to many. Just like Jonah would be coughed back up by this fish and appear in Nineveh as proof to them of God's sovereign, forgiving, life-giving, amazing grace for all who would repent of their sins and believe on Him for salvation. You see the gospel in Jonah? And this, how this all ought to kindle in our hearts, in our souls, such great gratitude for this great grace, this great sovereign grace conceived of and purposed and ordained in exacting detail since before the foundations of the world were ever laid so that God would love us before we ever were born. How much gratitude ought this to kindle in our hearts for this great grace by which God's eternal wrath has been turned away from us and we've been made to be at peace with Him. And how this gospel ought to kindle also such great humility in our souls because all of us were fleeing from Him no less than Jonah in our own pride, in our own sin. All of us were every bit as worthy of death and everlasting condemnation until God chased us down in His sovereign grace and made peace with us by giving His only begotten Son to die for us. And how that ought to kindle in our souls such grace and love in us for one another and for this world as we look upon, as we respond to, as we relate to our fellow sin sinners? Are we most eager to make peace even when people wrong us, even when people harm us, even if it costs us something? Because the love of God always is costly love. Because our God, who is infinitely more holy than we are, He's the one who relentlessly pursued peace with us at the cost of His own Son. What does John say? 1 John 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And what kind of love? Not the kind that the world has that only loves those who will love you and that are easy for you and that are lovely to you. Now, the love of God loves the unlovely. And the love of God is always costly and self-sacrificing love. Jerry Bridges says, and I, I preserved this quote for you in your bulletins on the page after the sermon notes, page 17. Love is costly. To forgive in love costs us our sense of justice. To serve in love costs us time. To share in love costs us money. 
Every act of love costs us in some way, just as it cost God to love us. But we are to live a life of love just as Christ loves us and gave himself for us at great cost to himself. Amen? Amen. Let's end there for today. And let's pray to our gracious God for the grace that we need to love as we have been loved and to serve Him and to, and to gratify Him with sacrifices of praise for the love with which He has loved us. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for the great gospel of the love of Jesus Christ which has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we pray with Paul in Ephesians that you would help us, Father, to discern the great height and depth and width of this great love with which we have been loved. And that it would change us and transform us and that we would radiate it into the world around it. That it would be the light in the darkness of this world. And so, Father, it would draw many people to Christ who need the love of Christ as the sailors on that ship did in order to be made at peace with God. And so, Father, we simply pray, help us by your amazing grace to live our lives in gratitude and in humility and in love. And in this way, glorify yourself and build your church. In Jesus' name, amen.